Hello, church. If you're joining us online for the first time, my name is Greg, and I am one of the pastors here, and we are in our fourth week in a study of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Uh, just one announcement before we get into it, and it's an important and happy announcement. On November 1st, we are going to be gathering again at our campus. We're going to start with a 9 a.m. service only, and we'll take reservations for that. And there's something in the digital bulletin, you'll get something in the e-news and continue to look for more information about that. Just one other thing, we're going to be celebrating communion today. And Pastor Frank is going to be leading us in communion. And so with that, let's pray together. Kind Father, thank you for this opportunity. As usual, we pray that you would be the primary teacher today that you would help us to see and understand what you're writing to the Ephesian church and what you are writing to us. So we give this time to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a pretty big unit of Scripture that we're looking at today, Ephesians 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 13. And so I want to give you the big idea just right up front. Here's the big idea. The gospel is intended to break down every socioeconomic class, caste, people group, and racial barrier to unite believers' hearts in profound ways. We actually, we'll find out, are going to become, we have become, a new family. Anthropologists, psychologists, and sociologists have all determined that every single human being on the planet has the same set of basic needs in order to both survive and to flourish. And after the physiological and the safety needs are met, there are acceptance and belonging needs. Here's one way to articulate them. Number one, we all need to feel authentically human. One word to describe this is dignity. It's an attribute that every person on the planet is born with. It's our desire, every person on the planet, to live out our lives in dignity. That's our longing. It's not everyone's experience, but that is our longing. Number two basic need, the need to belong, to feel something that's bigger than ourselves. And number three, to have a sense of destiny and purpose. Every human wants to make a difference. So it's in the heart of God to fully meet these needs in every single person. This is what Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about. In the letter, Paul is speaking to issues engaging in and walking out our true identity, both as individuals and as a church. The tagline or subtitle, especially for the first three chapters of our series, you know, Ephesians, Grace to Know and Grace to Go. Grace to Know is about the first three chapters. Grace to Go is the second three chapters. And the reason we've done that, grace to know what? Grace to know because our true identity is not achieved. Our true identity is received. Think about that for a moment. Our true identity is not achieved. Our true identity is received. 
the main distinctive between Christianity and every other religion or philosophy of life is that Christianity is not based on what we do to please or appease God. Christianity is based on what Jesus Christ has already done. That is the essence of the gospel message that Paul is presenting to us in the book of Ephesians. So what's going on in our passage today? Chapter 2, 11 through 3, 13. Paul makes a turn here in Ephesians 2, 11. He goes from talking about God's incredible plan to rescue us as individuals, and he begins to teach us about the church. Notice the passage begins with the word therefore. Depending on your translation, it will be the equivalent. I happen to uh, be teaching from the New American Standard today. And, and this is significant. The therefore is significant because the therefore, it connects everything he's about to say with everything that he's already said. He's not just randomly bringing up the church. He's saying the incredible experience of salvation and our new identity in Christ that he described in Ephesians 1 uh, to up to chapter 2, verse 10, will lead us to involvement in the church. Then we'll see in chapter 3, the first 13 verses, Paul begins to speak of his apostolic burden, the burden he carries for the church. So if you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 11, here's the question that we want to ask today. Can God be powerfully at work in your life apart from being part of Christ's body, the church? And the answer in the New Testament, consistently and without exception, is a resounding no. Looking at verse 12, what we want to take notice of is that to be separated from Israel was to be separated from Christ. Do you see it there? Separated from Christ, excluded from Israel. God reveals himself first to and through the nation of Israel. The other nations didn't know God. And if they wanted to know God, they needed to become Jewish. And when the gospel was first preached and, and Ephesians was written, most of our ancestors were about as far from God as you could ever get, unless you're Jewish or Greek or maybe Italian. The civilized Roman world had a name for our ancestors, barbarians. That's what they would have referred to us as. Sometimes we forget that. When Jesus and the apostles talked about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, they were talking about you and me. Again, this perspective has enormous implications for how we are to relate to one another and for how we relate to unchurched and dechurched people as well. And then down in verses 13 and 14, they acknowledge that something, they acknowledge something that we already know, and that our world is divided. There's very real hostility between various people groups, status groups, and ethnicities. 
we're probably more aware of that now than ever. A man named Samuel Huntington wrote a book back in 2011 entitled The Clash of Civilizations, in which he talks about a coming world crisis as civilizations are being forced together and our hostilities are being pushed to the surface, which is exactly what's happening with refugees moving all around the world and the racial injustice that we've been experiencing in the last few months. Paul acknowledges that there is a, a dividing wall of hostility between people. What Paul is referring to is that the, the Jewish people had a literal wall outside the temple with a sign that said, no Gentiles. The wall separated in the Jewish mind the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean. And to be sure, this is not just a Jewish issue, is it? Every culture has walls. Every culture has, has a way of defining itself where those inside the walls have it together more than those outside the walls. So we find some things about ourselves, our group, that sets us apart from others. Our race is better. Our race is smarter. We're better athletes. We show more courage in battle. We're more generous. We've built a better country. And, and we place around our culture this imaginary wall that separates us and makes us feel like we're better than those on the outside of the wall. Hostility comes in many ways, many shapes, and many sizes. What Paul is saying in these verses is that Jesus has torn down all of those walls by giving us a whole new way of understanding insiders and outsiders. Verses 14 through 16. These verses tell us that the walls of hostility have been torn down between believers because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It shows us that, that all of humanity has this co common problem. It's called sin. And that there's nothing any of us can do to achieve our own justification as hard as we try to do that. Remember Ephesians 2.5. It states that we are dead in our sins. Dead people, as you know, can't make choices. Yet God, in his kindness, awakens the eyes of our heart. That harkens us back to Ephesians 1, verse 18, that beautiful prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know, awakened, that you would know what is the hope of his calling in you. We can't get there without God's help. The most significant problem in all humanity, past, present, and future, that supersedes race, religion, education, political convictions, is sin. And the only solution to that problem 
is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, who did it for all of us, what we could not do for ourselves. The curse of a selfish, sinful nature means that there are no good people and bad people. There are no winners and losers. There are no people who have it together. We're all dysfunctional people. We're all beggars that are hungry for some bread that will satisfy a hungry soul. Furthermore, when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead, he created with his resurrection, we see in verse 15, a whole new race, a whole new humanity. See how it says he made the two into one new man. One new man is another one of the metaphors that is used for the church. And I might just say that we guys, we like this metaphor better than being identified as the bride of Christ. That just, for guys, that usually doesn't sit well, but when we can talk about one new man, that's kind of awesome. The death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus launches or creates a completely new race, a third race of people, Jew, Gentile, believer, Christian, the kingdom of God. This is radical. It means that if we are in Christ, our identity is not primarily as a white person, as an Asian person, a black person, or a Latino person. We are part of a new race. We are citizens now of the kingdom of God, first and foremost. And as we're able to see this, then our hostilities begin to die away. Why? Because it shatters pride and any attempt at self-justification. Becoming a believer doesn't mean that I cease being white or you cease being Asian or black or Latino. Uh, that would be disastrous. It means that more important than me being an, an American or me being white is the fact that I have been adopted into a new race, a new family. And this reality factors into how I relate to every other person. And of course, living this out is a whole other matter. I would remind you of our previous teaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, when Jesus came, he established the kingdom of God on the earth. And when he comes again, he'll consummate the kingdom of God on the earth. And you and I have the privilege of living in this in-between season. Theologian would describe it as the already and the not yet. We have, it's been established, but it isn't here in full, so we don't see the full fruition of the kingdom of God on the earth right now. And this is why when Jesus taught us how to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, he instructed us to pray 
that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a lot of people think what that means is that Jesus come back and take us out of here, but that's not what it's saying there. It's saying that we're praying for God's kingdom to come to earth and enlighten and awaken the eyes of people's hearts on the earth. That's what we're praying there. This gives us something in common with every other believer on the planet, and it supersedes everything else. This reminds me of what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6. Many of you will have read that. Isaiah underwent a type of conversion in Isaiah 6. He was, he was just walking into church one day, and God showed up and enlightened the eyes of his heart. He saw a vision of God, and he recognized that he was a man of unclean lips. He was already, history tells us, he was already considered a great orator. So even in what he was really good at, he still recognized that he was a man of unclean lips. We don't know exactly what he's talking about there. And when the seraphim, the, the, the angel, the seraphim flew at him with a burning coal, Isaiah thought he was going to die. He thought he was going to be judged, and he was going to be killed, burned up. The reformer John Calvin writes that Isaiah expected immediate destruction. But instead, he was cleansed. He was cleansed. Two things happened to Isaiah in that moment. He was humbled by God for graciously cleansing him, and he surrendered himself into the mission of God. So instead of judgment and death, there was cleansing and healing and surrender. It's a beautiful picture. Again, a type of conversion. He was humbled and he became bold because he had experienced God's love. This is a picture of the Christian life. We are to be a humble people because we are all sinners saved by grace and we are to be a bold people as part of this family, this new nation, humility and boldness, living in this dynamic tension, something like the already and the not yet. Humility and boldness is the lifestyle of the Christian. This is gospel grace and a beautiful picture of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God's holiness did not destroy Isaiah. It actually cleansed him. And when God's holiness meets the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross, it cleanses us too. As we repent, as we believe. Here's what happens. Isaiah's self-image was deconstructed and reconstructed right there on the spot. In a moment, Isaiah realized that he was more sinful than he ever dared believe, and simultaneously more loved than he ever dared imagine. And it's in the heart of God for us to have that kind of awakening. Let me say that again. Isaiah realized that he was more sinful than he ever dared believe about himself, and simultaneously 
He was more loved than he ever dared to imagine. And he became both humble and bold at the same time. This is what the Christian life is to look like. As I've said many times before, if you are in Christ, all that is true of Christ, if you are in Christ, all that is true of Christ is now true of you. The point that Paul is making in this is is how God has treated you fundamentally and forever affects how you treat and relate to other people. You were an outsider. You and I were outsiders, if you're a believer, and God invited us in. You and I can do nothing more than to lovingly and joyfully invite others to the table to enjoy God's mercy and God's grace. In verses 18 to 22, we see that all Jesus' followers have three things in common. Let me quickly share those with you. Number one, we have a common source of righteousness. Jesus Christ, it says, is the cornerstone of our acceptance before God. Number two, we have a common foundation of truth. It speaks of the apostles and prophets. Most commentators believe that this speaks of of the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets. So it's speaking about both the Old and the New Testament in 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 this sentence. One thing that stays the same in all churches everywhere is the revealed message of Scripture. The truths in this book are true for all people in all places at all times. We talked about that being the same as the Lord's Prayer. True for all people in all places at all times. Each culture applies these truths a bit differently, but those truths never change. And number three, we have a common purpose. Believers have been built together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You and I are just bricks in God's holy dwelling place. And then looking into chapter 3, Paul goes through, through some pretty good theology in verses 1 through 12 to get to his conclusion in verse 13. Verses 2 through 6 speak of the mystery of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, verse 27. That's the mystery that is seen through the eyes of faith. Verses 3, chapter 3, 7 through 9 is the ministry of the gospel. So the mystery of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and we see Paul's humility and boldness in action in these verses. And then verses 10 to 12 are the manifold wisdom of the gospel. So we have the mystery of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, the manifold wisdom of the gospel. God is committed to working through his church. One of my mentors used to say, yeah, God could have done better, but he had help. He invited us in to help him. He could have done better, but he had help. 
This makes counting the cost a very easy calculation for us. As we draw this to a close and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to tell you a little story. On a cold and wintry afternoon in Chicago, Deal Moody, if you don't know that name, he was a 17th century pastor and evangelist. There's still Moody Church, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So Moody, on this cold wintry afternoon, he made a pastoral visit to a parishioner. And as they sat near the fire, the parishioner told Moody that while he was content to be a believer, he didn't see any need for the church or to be a part of the church. And Moody listened and then quietly grabbed the poker. They were sitting at a fire. He grabbed the poker and stuck it into the fire and, and pushed aside one of the coals. And, and then he just sat there quietly. And as they both watched the fire, that singular coal that had been pushed out there lost its heat. And the man turned to Moody and said, I, I see what you mean. We need to be part of God's church. We are called to be part of God's church and to a local church. I would say we can't have Jesus without the church. To use Paul's metaphor about the church being a building, no brick is complete without the other bricks. It's just a brick. In the same way, none of us are complete in Christ without being part of the building. Every brick needs all of the other bricks to actually be the building. It's just a brick. None of us are complete in Christ without one another. So in one sense, the Spirit doesn't fully dwell in any of us. The Holy Spirit fully dwells only when we are together as the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit inhabits the whole building, thus only being part of the body of Christ, I will experience the fullness of Christ. And I would just say as we move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper, if you're watching our live online service, there is prayer available for you right now. You can, you can indicate a, a desire for prayer and you'd be invited into one of our private prayer chat rooms. And if you want prayer or would like to know what it means to know more about this person, Jesus Christ, then you can indicate that, and we would love to connect you with somebody to talk more about that or to pray for you for anything that you would like prayer for. You can ask for it right now, or you can wait till the end of the service. As we close, I would love to pray for you.
and to pray for me. Lord, I, I would declare that we don't really get it. For Paul to write that back up in Ephesians 1, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart, he's writing to the church. So even people who are in church, a part of church, love the church, we still need the eyes of our heart enlightened. So Lord, that is my prayer for myself today, for us as people, and for those who might be looking in. I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of your calling, that we would continue to grow in this insight, this understanding, this mystery of being part of this brand new race, a third race, that are citizens of the kingdom of God, living between the already and the not yet, living between humility and boldness, becoming more and more sensitive and loving and accepting the people that you have placed in our lives to listen well, to love well, to share the beauty and the wonder of the gospel in the fullness of time as you lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.